sounds like a story to me Some crazy fable that you would not believe Welcome to the Avram Davidson universe, where we listen to some of the greatest stories ever written. Adored by Ursula Le Guin, Neil Gaiman, Leonard Nimoy, Ray Bradbury, and Stephen King. Enjoy classic tales such as Are All the Seas with Oysters, The Golem, Sources of the Nile, and many others. Welcome to this episode of the Avram Davidson universe podcast. Today, we're going to be listening to Thou Still Unravished Bride. Uh, it was originally published in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine in October of 1958. It was also adapted as an Alfred Hitchcock Hour episode, which aired in on March 22nd, 1965. I'll put a link to the episode so you can both listen to the story from the uh, Auburn Davidson Universe podcast. But you can also watch the episode. I think it's fun to compare and contrast the two. Our guest today, once again, is Jack Seabrook, uh, who's an author of two books on popular fiction, uh, one regarding the life and work of Frederick Brown, and another one on the writings of Jack Finney. He also loves, has a blog and loves to discuss all the different episodes of Alfred Hitchcock's Presents, which is why he's a great guest. But before he comes on, I wanted to discuss a couple of things. One, it's going to sound silly. This is not my day job. I do this for fun. Uh, and my day job is heating up. So I'm not having as much time as I'd like to go out and find guests. If you're interested in being a guest on the Auburn Davidson Universe podcast, reach out to me. You can find me at auburndavidson.com. I'd love to have some new guests. Uh, you don't have to be a famous writer. You can just love Auburn's work. You can be a famous writer, uh, but all I'm looking for are people who love Auburn's stories and love to discuss them. Uh, so feel free to reach out to me at AuburnDavidson.com. Uh, last but not least, I've mentioned this in previous uh, episodes, Dragons in the Trees, it is done. Uh, it's Auburn's travel journal to Belize. And it's the foundation for his Lime Killer series. It is fantastic. It's big. Uh, but if you are uh, interested in possibly, maybe by the time that this episode is live, it may already be available. But if you're interested in uh, reading it early and writing a review, uh, having an advanced copy, let me know. I haven't decided when I'm going to publish yet, but I'm really excited and it's fantastic. So with that, uh, let's have Jack come on. Jack, thanks so much for joining me again. Oh, you're welcome. Happy to do it. Yeah. So since we last spoke, what what have you been up to? What are you working on? Um, pretty much more of the same. Uh, spent a lot of time working on our blog, Bare Bones E-Zine. Um, I review the Alfred Hitchcock Presents and the Alfred Hitchcock Hour TV shows and compare them to the stories that they're based on. I've done over 300 now, so I've got about a year and a half to go. There's there's about 365 of them in all. Uh, other other than Avram Davidson, of course, uh, is, there, is there a favorite? I'm just curious. Is there one that you say, oh man, if you love mystery, or, or a couple that just jump out at you, that you well, say- Well, the TV shows, um, yeah. the half hour, there's a half hour show and an hour show, and they, Half hour, I think the favorite is probably Man from the South, which is based on a Roald Dahl story. Um, you may remember the story. It's about the guy who who is a, a gambler and he bets someone that he can light his lighter 10 times in a row successfully. And if he loses, they cut off his finger. That's oh a very cool story. Yeah, with Steve McQueen and Peter Laurie. So it's a great cast. Oh, I'm definitely going to check that out. Yeah, and there's um, there's a couple of the hours that are just classics. One is The Jar by Ray Bradbury, and another one is called An Unlocked Window about um, some nurses who were in a, a house with a serial killer on the loose. So they're they're a lot of fun if you get to see them. And and in terms of actors, uh, who would be maybe the most famous, I mean, Steve McQueen is huge. Who, who are some of the most famous actors that might surprise folks 
that that have been on there. Well, they had it was on for ten years, and they had some pretty famous people. And one of the most famous was Betty Davis. Was actually in one episode. Um, but Steve McQueen, Peter Lorre, um, John Williams is a favorite if you know him. But, but a lot of people from Hollywood guested on the show. Joseph Cotton as well. Wow, it's a great show. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm definitely I'm definitely going to watch a couple of those for sure. Well, today uh, we're going to do another Avram story, which is Thou Still Unravished Bride. And I think before we get started and, and listen to it, I think one of the interesting things for me was where they decided to set the story. Uh, and I'm curious if, if you have any thoughts on that. I, they set it in, in London, uh, whereas in Avram's story, it's not set in London. So I was just curious, any thoughts on that? And if that was typical? Yeah, the, um, I read the introduction in the collection of stories where they they say they thought it was set in Yonkers, New York, which is kind of a small suburb of New York City. And someone else said maybe a, a North New Jersey city. And I don't know, I think it's pretty clear that it's in the New York area. Um, they refer to a city, they refer to a river. It's big enough that they have detectives on their police force. And the main character, as you'll hear, takes a train trip to Chicago and back and is gone for a few days. So it has to be somewhere that's far enough from Chicago that it would take a day or two to get there by train. So it seems to me like probably somewhere in the New York area. And the fact that Mr. Davidson was from Yonkers, I think. Um, supports the the thought that it might be Yonkers or somewhere very much like that. Okay. But as far as London, um, the uh, the TV show is set in London, and I think probably because it was very atmospheric. I think um, as we'll talk about later, I'm sure the main character spends some time walking around the city in the TV show version, and you've got the London fog, you've got everyone with accents. She goes in a pub. I think it's just more evocative than walking around Yonkers, New York. <laughs> what are you? What are you trying to say? <laughs> uh, nothing against Yonkers, but I think you can do a lot more on film with with foggy London. I think I think you're right. Uh, anything more before we jump into the story? You think? No, let's listen to it. All right, let's do it. Thou still unravished bride. Almost as remarkable as Avram Davidson's startling originality was his agility to take the familiar, even the hackneyed, and make it new once again. The story of the disappearing bride dates at least as far back as Guy de Maupassant, nor would it surprise me should some scholar trace this theme still further, and has been revisited by such distinguished authors as Cornwell Woolrich. But in Thou Still Unravished Bride, Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, October 1958, Avram gave the story at least two startling twists and made this new version entirely his own. The editors of EQMM said that the story takes place in a, quote, big city in the United States, end quote. Grania feels that Avram had Yonkers in mind. While I am willing to defer to her judgment, I must say that, to me, the story feels more like one of those middle-sized New Jersey towns, Teaneck or Elizabeth, or East Orange. When the story was adapted for the Alfred Hitchcock Presents television series, March 1965, the producers moved the setting to England. The superb cast included Sally Kellerman, Ron Randall, Michael Pate, and David Carradine. It was directed by David Friedkin. Perhaps these different readings arise from the universality of the story's themes. Though still unravished bride introduces police captain Foley and detectives Bonn and Steinberg. I don't know of any classic type contemporary police procedural stories among Avram's output, but he could use the paraphernalia of convention when it suited his purpose, as it did in this search for the so-called Miss Sally Benner. R.A.L. It used to be said, in some circles, that a lady had her name in the newspapers exactly three times, when she was born, when she was married, and when she was buried. It was never altogether true, for a lady was entitled to be mentioned when she became a mother, too. 
Of course, there are ladies who, even today, are not likely to be seen in the public print at all. This is not because they are hyper-ladylike. It is because they live in large cities and are obscure and poor. Sally Benner was certainly a lady of this class. And yet, she received attention enough in the newspapers because, it appeared, she was not going to be married. And perhaps not buried, either. Mrs. Benner heard Sally stirring at six in the morning. At seven, Sally started to get up. But her mother pushed her back. There's plenty of time, Mrs. Benner said. You didn't get to bed till late, and you need your rest. I'll tell you when to get up. So the young woman said, Yes, mother. She was a very obedient daughter. That was what made it all so odd. At eight, Mrs. Benner let her get up. Sally took a shower and came down to breakfast, kissed her father, kissed her mother. The two women clung to one another, shed a few tears. Old Joe Benner looked up from his coffee and waffles and growled a bit. Women he said, addressing the canary. The way they cry about weddings makes you wonder why they bother about them at all. You shut up, said his wife without malice. You were so pale at your own wedding that the minister didn't know whether to marry you or bury you. And she gave a little whimper of laughter. I've often wished it was the last, Joe said, and pretended to duck as Mrs. Benner gave him a slight smack on the cheek with her hand. That's for being so fresh, she said. He captured his wife's hand and held on to it and told Sally that he hoped she'd be as happy with her bob as he and her mother had been with each other. That was the way the start of the day went. No sparkling dialogue, exactly. No dramatics. The Benners were respectable, working-class people. They had four children. The other girl, Jenny, the eldest, had been married off long ago for Mr. B, he said, to recoup his fortunes for the wedding of his youngest. There was going to be a reception at the church— then a family supper at Leary's Restaurant, then a big reception with dancing at Anderson Hall. After that, the newlyweds would take off on their honeymoon at, but of course no one presumably knew where that was to be except Sally and Bob. Mrs. Manton, Sally's mother-in-law-to-be, had thrown out some pretty strong hints that someone ought to know where, meaning she ought to. Suppose there's an emergency of some sort comes up, Mrs. Manton had asked her son more than once, with a snivel standing by in case her son, whom she was now about to lose forever, should talk sharply to her. Keep the old man out of the bottle and there won't be an emergency, Bob said. But he told her after a while that his older brother, Eddie, was privy to the secret and she had to be content with that. After Sally went in to dress, and her mother attacked the dishes, and her father, he had his own plumbing business, prepared to just step around and check up on the arrangements, Mrs. Benner remarked, Well, never let it be said again in my presence that the Lord doesn't answer prayers. How many years I have been praying for Sally to find a nice fellow. He took his time, though, didn't he? Seeing how Bob lives right down the block here. But... Mr. Benner hastened, as Peg Benner turned on him ready for battle. I'm not complaining. Long as they're suited, I'm suited. But he didn't get off that easily. His wife let him know that it was seldom enough that he went to church, and it wasn't him who had the heartbreak all these years waiting and watching and worrying, and it was all for the best because early marriages weren't near as likely to last. After he left, his married daughter Jenny came over, and so did their two daughters-in-law, and so did Sally's best friend, and also Mrs. Benner's sister Emma. They examined the bridal gown and the guest list and the presents, and they hugged Sally and started crying a little to warm up for the evening. Suddenly, it was ten o'clock, and they looked up as the church clock started chiming, and there was Sally, dressed to go out. And where do you think you're going? Aunt Emma demanded in a mock, ferocious tone. You better behave. You're not too big to be hit, you know. Sally said she was just going out to pick up a few things at the store. She was a tall, quiet girl, pink and slow and sweet. The failure of the male race to snap her up years ago had long been held against it by all distaff branches of the Benner family. What things, demanded Aunt Emma, what could you buy that ain't been bought already? Her best friend said she'd go with Sally. Her sister Jenny said to wait just a minute, she'd drive them down. But Sally, for all her quiet and obedience, had a mind of her own. She said, no, I'll just go by myself. Ah, let her go, said her mother. Let her get a breath of air and take a little walk. Here's the whole lot of us jabbering away. Let the girl alone. She waved at her daughter. 
who waved back as she walked off down the street. It was lined with two-story wooden houses. They were set right next to one another. They were all kind of on the small side, but each had a backyard and a front yard, a tree and a little garden, and some potted plants, and some had a swing on the porch and stained glass in the front door. It was a comfortable neighborhood, a quiet one, known to even the older generation from childhood. It was safe. It was home. Listen here, Peg, Aunt Emma demanded. I want to see that seating list. If you've put me and Sam next to Mamie Johnson like you did at Jenny's wedding, Mrs. Benner gave the sigh of one who has, or as nearly as makes no difference, married off her last child, a daughter, aged 30, and for whom life holds no further problems. And she said to her sister, Oh, if you didn't have something to complain about, Emma, I honestly believe you'd die. Mamie Johnson, poor thing, hasn't set foot out of her house in months. Emma said, no, and asked what was wrong. And Mrs. Benner said, well, she had like what they used to call dropsy, but nowadays the doctors gave it another name. Sally rounded the corner and came face to face with Bob Manton on his way back from the barbershop with his brother Eddie. She said, oh, and blushed. Eddie cried, hey, you ain't supposed to see your bride the day of the wedding. It's bad luck. And he playfully put his hand over Bob's eyes. Bob pushed aside the hand. He and Sally gazed at each other. Neither, it seemed, could think of anything to say. Finally, Eddie asked Sally where she was going, and she said, To the store to get a few things. He said, Oh. Bob broke silence at last. Well, I'll, um, see you tonight, honey. Sally nodded, and they parted. So I said to her, Well, it's up to them, Mrs. Manton, I said. Joe and me, we put it up to them, I said. We let them choose. Do you want a big wedding, or would you rather have the money to buy furniture? We asked them. And they talked it over, and the decision was entirely theirs. I know it's very nice of you and Bob's father to move all your things off of the second floor and put it in the kitchen and all, I said. But if they want to buy furniture, I mean such expensive furniture that they have to do it on time, why, that's up to them, I said. That's up to them. Mrs. Benner's sister, her older daughter, her daughters-in-law and her younger daughter's girlfriend all listened to Mrs. Benner and nodded. Occasionally, they punctuated her recital with, Believe me, or I'll say, or imagine that. And then the church clock began to chime eleven. The expression on Mrs. Benner's face, at once combative and self-excusing, changed immediately. Why, what's happened to Sally? she exclaimed. At first, her emotion was one of mere affectionate annoyance. By half-past eleven, she had begun to feel vexed. By twelve, she was experiencing a definite anxiety. Jenny got into her car and went to look for her sister. Mrs. Benner got on the telephone and began calling places where it was possible Sally might have stopped off to get so engrossed in conversation as to forget this was her wedding day. The girlfriend, a thin girl with a skin condition named Agnes, who had, after the first outburst of joyful congratulations, begun to moan that after the wedding Sally wouldn't want her around anymore, left to call on a few people who had no telephone. One of the sisters-in-law went around the corner to Mr. Benner's shop, as his line was busy. "'What is he doing there anyway so long?' fretted his wife. "'He should have been back here long ago. Hello, Sadie? Peg, is Sally there?' "'Oh.' Well, was she there this morning? I mean, she wasn't. All right, Sadie, I'll see you this... No, no, it's all right. I just thought she might have dropped by. Tonight then, Sadie. Bye. And so it went. Sally hadn't been to anybody's house, even the Mantons. Bob's brother, Eddie, answered the phone. He told of their having met on their way to the store. When? Oh, a little after ten. No, she didn't say which store. Should I tell Bob? I mean, I will right now if you want me to, but... I mean, she'll probably turn up any minute now, so why get him nervous for nothing? But if you want me to, Mrs. Benner said. No, he was right. There was no point in getting Bob upset, too. By half past one, they had canvassed all the stores in the neighborhood. The only one where Sally had been seen was Felber's Pharmacy. She had bought some things, the druggist said, at about ten or fifteen minutes after ten. She'd seemed okay. When Mr. Felber said to her, handing over the package, cosmetics, hairpins, chewing gum, well, today's the big day, eh? Hey, Sally? She had smiled and said, I'm so happy, Mr. Felber. He had wished her all the luck in the world. By now, it was half past two. 
Suddenly Aunt Emma, who had been saying, Oh, I wouldn't worry, Peg. She's probably just wandering around in a kind of sky-blue-pink daze. Aunt Emma suddenly burst into tears and said, Well, I don't care what anybody says. I think we ought to call the police. And all the women broke down and began to wail. And so Mr. Benner found them when he returned. And after he got them quieted down, that was what he did. He phoned the police. The wedding was called off, but quite a number of guests turned up anyway. Some because they hadn't gotten the word. Others because they thought Sally might turn up in time for the wedding to take place after all. Naturally, they had all made their way to the house, and the police decided not to turn them away because, who knows, one of them might know something that would shed light on the matter. But no one knew anything. Late that night, Detectives Bonn and Steinberg were talking about it with Captain Foley. Everybody says the same thing, Bonn observed. She was a nice, sweet, quiet girl. She was a homebody. She's had no broken engagements, no troublesome ex-boyfriends. She never even went steady before. So far as anybody knows, the girl was perfectly happy with the marriage. Except for the fiancé, his brother, and the druggist, though, nobody seems to have seen her once she left the old lady's sight. Steinberg took up the tale. The fiancé seems to be okay. Nobody knows anything against him. And even if they did, he's been with some member of his own family all day long. Brother, mother, father. He says she couldn't have run off by herself. Crying like a baby, the guy was. At the same time, he doesn't want to admit she may be met with foul play. So... He says it's got to be amnesia. Bonn was dark and thin. Steinberg was red-haired and stocky. Captain Foley, who was pale and bald, asked, What about the druggist? And don't give me that line he sold her vanishing cream, Bond said. Well, as a matter of fact, Captain, he did. Vanishing cream, face powder, deodorant hairpins, and a pack of chewing gum. Foley shook his head. That don't sound like no suicide to me. I know, I know, people have committed suicide on the eaves of their weddings before, but a girl who's going to kill herself don't bite deodorants and chewing gum. Even if the river is only five blocks away, I'm not buying suicide, no. Either she made a voluntary disappearance, in which case she ought to have a butt smack not letting the family know, or else it was foul play. And if she was attacked, she's most likely dead by now. They've been through every empty building in the neighborhood. Not only in the neighborhood, but in the whole section of the city said Steinberg. How could she be the victim of violence in broad daylight, at ten o'clock in the morning, in a place where everybody knew her? But Captain Foley said the violence needn't have occurred in the neighborhood. A car pulls up at the curb. A guy offers her a ride. She gets in. What's to notice? He asked. And then the car drives off. She wasn't the kind of girl to accept a ride from a stranger? Then maybe it wasn't a stranger. The story was in the morning papers and the usual crowd had gathered, or rather, was circulating. The police wouldn't let them stop, near the Benner's house. Mrs. Benner was in her room, having failed to fight off the effects of a sedative the doctor made her take. Joe Benner and Bob, red-eyed, were sitting together in the kitchen, drinking black coffee. It was amnesia, Bob repeated for the thousandth time. She wouldn't have run off. Not Sally. Her picture's in the papers. Somebody's bound to see her. Sure, Sally's father repeated, his face reflecting no such optimism. Sure. Bon and Steinberg mingled with the crowd. They looked and listened. They ought to call the FBI. Can't do that unless there's evidence of a kidnapping. They ought to drag the river. Evidence? What would you call uh, evidence? They must have had a quarrel. Don't tell me. They had a lover's tiff and the boyfriend's ashamed to say. They ought to drag the river. My cousin, he run out on his wedding once, but a guy... It's a different thing, you know what I mean? The next day, Mrs. Benner went on television and appealed to her daughter to return home, or, if for any other reason she was unwilling to do this, at least to communicate with her family. For the afternoon and evening news, she was joined by Bob Manton. He begged Sally's forgiveness if he had offended her in any way. He asked only that she notify them if she was all right. The minister of the Benner's church issued a statement but no one heard a word from her. The usual flow of evil communications began by mail and phone. Sally's body was in an alley on the other side of town. Sally was being held for ransom. A woman had seen her from the window of a bus in another state. She was coming out of a bar. 
Speaking of bars, suggested Bon, let's uh, circulate in a few of them. For all I know, the girl is what they say she is, but maybe she isn't. If there's any dirt, you hear it over the bar. Steinberg nodded. Perhaps it is because Americans have guilt feelings about drinking during daylight hours that almost all bars are dark and dim. When the first place fell into focus after the bright street, the detective partners observed that there was a moderate gathering in the bar cavern. An elderly woman with wild white hair and cracked enamel face was crooning into her beer. I don't care, you go ahead and laugh if you want to, but I say in my opinion, all these young girls disappearing, it's the white slave trade, what I think. Nah, said a sharp-looking young man a few stools down. That's all a thing of the past. No mystery in my opinion. Girl changed her mind. Woman's privilege, isn't it, Mabel? She's afraid to go home. The man to his right met this suggestion with such an insufferable smirk that the sharp-looking fellow was nettled. All right, Oscar, he said. What do you think? I think they ought to drag the river, said Oscar. Bond looked up. He saw out of the corner of his eye that his partner had caught it too. Weren't you over at the Bennis place yesterday? Steinberg asked Oscar. Oscar said, yeah, he'd went over to take a look, but the cops kept moving everybody on. You saw that, didn't you? How'd you like that? Move along, keep moving, he mimicked. No wonder they ain't found nothing out yet. Waste all that time like that. Bond said, yeah, well, I heard you make the observation at that time that they ought to drag the river. And I still say it. Mabel ordered another beer. The sharp-looking young man took a look at Bon, observed Steinberg, affected a startled glance at the clock, and was suddenly gone. Steinberg moved into his place. Well, no, Oscar, that's a long, long river, he said. Where do you think they ought to start dragging? Because unless they pick the right spot, they could spend a year and not find anything. Where would you imagine is the best place? Oscar studied his face in the mirror. Bon moved in from the other side. From the point, maybe? Bon suggested. Oscar snorted. Bon, seemingly offended, said, What's the matter with the point? Steinberg said, Well, where then? Come on, Oscar. I'm really interested. You guys reporters or something? Bon nodded. Oscar brightened, turned to face him. No kidding, he exclaimed. You writing up this story? I've got my uh, car outside, Bon said. Why don't we take a ride by the river? Oscar thought that was a fine idea. He and Bon went out. Steinberg said to the bartender, And who might that guy be? The bartender shrugged. One of old man Portland's nephews. Old lady died about a month back. Portland don't like to live alone, so he invites Oscar to move in with him. What does Oscar do? Well, matter of fact, I don't believe he does anything except play cards, drink beer, and watch the TV and shoot off his big mouth, like, for instance, just now. There were parks along the river, wastes, factories, and docks, some of them abandoned. Bon and Oscar Portland walked along one of the docks. Look how dangerous it is, said Oscar. Girl could have come down for a walk, tripped and zing, and she goes, see what I mean? Maybe hit her head going over, then she wouldn't come up, a yell for help or nothing. You had a lot of experience with incidents like that. What do you think? It was a pleasant day the breeze whipping the water lightly. Seagulls swooped and skimmed low, creeing to one another. Out in the river, a tug passed slowly by with a string of barges. I think, said Bon, after a pause, that it sounds very possible. I think we ought to tell the police. Oscar's reply to this was a short, blunt syllable. Don't like the police much, huh? Oscar's lips went, psh. They give you a hard time? Bum rap, maybe? That did it. Boy, can you say that again? Oscar burst out. His rather nondescript face darkened. Sympathetically, Bon asked what the rap was. Off the record, of course. Oscar smirked. Off the record? Statutory rape. It was a bum rap. She said she was 18. How was I supposed to know she was a tramp anyway? Everybody knew that. Bon said, gee... That was too bad. But he still thought they ought to see the cops. 
When Oscar still demurred, Bon took out his badge. Then, in silence, they went back to his car. She was always such a good baby, said Mrs. Benner, a tear-choked voice to a lady reporter. See, this picture here, when she was only eight months old? She showed the reporter photos and locks of hair and letters and school books, her daughter's life from infancy to womanhood. What did Sally like to read when she was young, the lady reporter asked. Poetry, said Mrs. Benner. She always liked high-class poetry. She blew her nose. This little book here. Now, she bought this with her own money. Mrs. Benner belonged to a class and generation which did not buy books. The fact alone would have served to grace the small volume, even if it were not hollowed by having belonged to her missing daughter. It's the poems of John Keats. She always used to say to me, Oh, Mama, this is so beautiful. She particularly liked this one. I know the name the minute I see it. Oh, uh, here, this one. She moistened her lips and prepared to read, following the line with her finger. Thou still unravished bride of quietness. Her voice was measured and proud. As the meaning of what she had just read penetrated her awareness, she looked up at the reporter, then over at her daughter's picture on the piano. Then she raised her hands and screamed and dropped her face into her hands and cried again and again in her grief and fear and anguish. All right, said Steinberg. So it was a bum rap. She was a tramp. She said she was 18. So let's forget that one. What else you been sent up on? We'll find out soon enough. Oscar mumbled that he was never convicted of anything else. So you weren't convicted? What were you tried for, besides this one? Nothing? Sure. Okay. Ever charged with anything else? What were you charged with? The man looked around the small cubicle. He tried to smirk again, but failed. Ah, that was a bum rap, too. Wouldn't even press charges. What was it? Oscar swallowed, took another long look around. Then... Not meeting anyone's eyes, he said loudly, Rape. But you didn't even press the charge. Bond said, What makes you so sure the girl's in the river? Did you put her there? Oh, no, I, I never seen her. You kept saying that the police ought to drag the river, Steinberg hammered away. Why? You put her in the river, didn't you? She resisted you, and you killed her. Isn't that what happened? Or maybe, Bond suggested persuasively, it was an accident. You didn't mean to kill her. So maybe you made a pass. What the hell? It could happen to anybody. Only she was a dumb kid. She got scared. Oscar nodded slowly, his lips beginning to settle into their habitual smirk. Bon went on. She started to run, tripped on that rotten old dock, fell and hit her head. Maybe it was like that, huh? It could have happened to anybody. Why don't you tell us, kid? Then we can wrap this up. You cop a plea. Get a few months, which you can do them standing on your head. Give us the details. That's all we want. We find the body. Settle the whole matter. Let's have the story. The stenographer takes it down. We order in some lunch. You hungry? Huh? We get you some steak and some french fries. The smirk was in full rain now. Oscar shook his head slowly, admiringly. Well, I gotta hand it to you. He said, boy, you must have eyes in the back of your head. Yeah, that's just how it happened. She trips and falls and hit her head. I feel for the pulse. There's no pulse. The dame's dead. So, I mean, I panicked. I figured, who'd believe me with my record? You know what I mean? So I threw her in the river. He looked up at the two detectives. Bon asked, very softly, Where did you throw her in? Right where you showed us? Oscar nodded. Bon's sigh was echoed by Steinberg. For a minute, no one spoke. Then Bon said, well, I better go tell them so they can start dragging. And then I guess the family has to be told. Okay, Steinberg, you get the truth out of this monkey. But I told you the truth, Oscar protested. He was bewildered. The tone of the last remark had frightened him. It's just how it happened, like you said, accident. His face bleak. The officer said, that story wouldn't convince my six-year-old daughter. And she still believes in Santa Claus. You know what I think of when I meet characters like you? Suppose when she grows up. Abruptly, he turned and said, Take care of him, Steinberg, and walked out. Bond drove his car three times around the block where the Benners lived. Finally, he parked and started up the steps. 
They ought to have the police chaplains take care of things like this, he muttered. His finger hesitated on the bell. A noise, a babble of voices that he had unconsciously assumed was a neighbor's television, was coming from the Benner house. He tried the door. It was open. He walked in. The apartment was crowded, everyone shouting and crying and laughing. Hysteria, he thought. It's finally hit them. Mrs. Benner and a young woman were sobbing and clutching each other, rocking back and forth. Bon turned to old Joe Benner, who was crying, tears running down his face. Mr. Benner, he began. Oh, Lord, the police, someone said. We didn't tell the police. Tell us what, Bon demanded. And then they all started yelling at once, and Mrs. Benner released the young woman who turned around to face him, and he saw that it was her daughter, Sally. Bond sat down abruptly. Oh, I feel so ashamed, Sally said, starting to cry again. Bob Manton hugged her and sniffled. Never mind, honey. Never mind, honey. Why? asked the detective. Why did you do it, Miss Benner? Where were you? Oh, it was such a silly thing. I'm so ashamed. It was just this awful impulse. It started in the drugstore when Mr. Felba said, well, today's the big day. And I said, I'm so happy, Mr. Felba. And then I got outside and it was like I heard another person saying, are you really happy? Do you really love him? And I said to myself, gee, I don't know. I don't really know. I mean, maybe I don't love him. Maybe I was only desperate because here I am 30 years old and no one else ever asked me to marry him. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be terrible to get married if I wasn't sure? I was, like, in a daze. So I got on the bus and rode to the station, and I took this train to Chicago. And when I got there, I read in the papers about how nobody knew what had happened to me, so I just took the train back. Oh, I feel so ashamed. I'm sorry if I caused you any trouble. The detective stared at her. She didn't look very bright, but even so, you just took the train back, he repeated. You didn't even bother about a phone call or a telegram? No, sis, you didn't give us any trouble. You only had every police officer on the force working overtime for four days, that's all. You only... But he was interrupted. A fat woman in eyeglasses, Aunt Emma, said, Well, aren't you the brave one yelling at this poor little girl? I suppose you're disappointed she isn't dead, huh? Bond stared at her. Well, excuse me, lady, he said, but that's just exactly what I did think. And you know why? Because some psycho down at the jail just confessed killing her and dumping her body in the river. And Bon snatched the telephone and dialed headquarters. Steinberg, listen, this is all for nothing. Call off dragging the river. His partner said, what do you mean, call it off? Where are you? At the Benners? Better bring one of them down to identify the body. Bon said, what body? Steinberg said impatiently, the girl's body. They found it first thing. She was right where he dumped her in, poor kid. Her dress was snagged on a spike. That's why the body didn't come up. Bring one of them down to identify her. Better make it the brother-in-law. Bon hung up, feeling that he needed time to set Steinberg straight. All he could do was look at Sally Benner and tell himself that her disappearance had not been all for nothing after all. So what'd you think? I like it. Um, I think it's a good story. I especially like the twist at the end. It's it's almost like two twists, but it... it Parts of it, it's, it's almost like a, a funny family story, but at the end, it takes that dark turn. Yeah. And, and, and going back to the adaptation versus the Alvram story, a, any thoughts between the two? Well, it's, it's a very different story. I'm, I know you've watched the TV version, yeah. but in the short story... There's no sense of somebody being killed or other people being killed until the very end. But the TV show opens with that. The very first scene, you see a girl who's been strangled and is lying dead on the sidewalk and the police come in and you meet the detective. And then the detective turns out to be Sally's fiance, which is right. totally different than the story. Then as it goes along, I'm, I'm sure because they have an hour to fill on TV, um, instead of, in the story, Sally just goes out, she meets Bob, she goes to the drugstore, she disappears. You don't hear anything further about her until the very end when she reappears. But in the TV version, you see where she goes. She walks around London, she goes to a 
store. She goes to a pub. She meets a prostitute who thinks she's a prostitute because why else would she be hanging out in that neighborhood? And then she meets Oscar, the character who turns out to be a killer. And then you lose her. That sort of takes back up with the story. You don't know what happened to her. But in the show, it goes back and forth, cutting from the family in their hotel room, gradually becoming more worried and wondering where she is. And we get to see where she is. She's walking around. She seems kind of dim-witted because mm-hmm. she's going in all these dangerous places and just sort of looking around like with her guidebook, like, oh, Percy Shelley walked here. And, you know, we know there's a serial killer on the loose. But it's a, it's a very different way of telling the story. And it sort of takes the twist away a little bit, that takes the effectiveness of it away from the, from what you get in the story, I think. I agree. I, I was thinking, going back to the initial question that I had, which is London versus Yonkers. And I think they even mentioned at the beginning of the adaptation, Jack the Ripper. I mean, I think they really gave it a modern day twist on Jack the Ripper. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that, but you're absolutely right. I mean, I think I almost feel like it's almost like they didn't really need Auburn's story in a way <laughs> because it really was just a Jack the Ripper with this one little twist. And I think you're right. There were more, there was more than one twist in Auburn's story, but here there was just kind of the, the one twist. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And at the end of the story and at the end of the show, it's the same thing. They She gets back, she's safe and then they find another girl, but the bizarre character of Oscar is almost even more weird in the TV show because you kind of wonder, does he even realize that this girl was not the girl they're looking for? I, I, so wonder, I, wonder, I wonder. It's not really clear. Yeah. D- young, young Dave, David Carradine was such an, so you know, interesting lo- looking at him and, and how they presented him. Um, almost like a dream, dreamy sort of strange character. Uh, yeah, and you, I mean, we think of him as, you know, Kwai Chang Kane in Kung Fu, and then older, he's in Kill Bill, and he's always kind of the guy either with swords or his hands or something, but in this, he's quoting poetry and leading the police down to the river and sort of looking off in the distance like a like a dreamy nut, really. And the, and in the TV show, all the people that Sally meets in London seem kind of nuts, all the they, men. And, they, they and it's really like there's a, there's a series of different people who could be the killer. And from the first scene where someone was dead, you know there is a killer out there, which is not something you know in the story. One thing that, that I do think was interesting with Sally is that in the adaptation, she's kind of a ditz. I don't know if that's the right word, but definitely kind of out there. But also, even in Avram's story, she was a bit dreamy or young or immature. Uh, And then in both, so I'm curious about that, but then also in both stories, and it's so funny today, right? She's 31. She's so old. Oh my gosh, and she's not married yet. And and that was that was sort of made into a big issue in both both the adaptation and and uh, and story. And now what at thirty one? I mean that's that's fine. You know that's early for some folks these days to get married. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, that is that's a very big difference. Um, that would not fly today. I don't think if you were to adapt it now. No, I, I don't think so. <laughs> Any any characters? I mean, which character sort of were you drawn to the most, or found the most compelling or interesting character? And maybe in both Auburn's adapt Auburn's story as well as the Alfred Hitchcock adaptation. I think in both cases it was Oscar the killer yeah. as the most interesting, just because he was the the strangest and his behavior was so odd. He didn't really know whether he was actually guilty of anything or whether he was just crazy but i thought that the story did a good job depicting him that way and the tv show with the visuals and david carradine's 
look, as you said, and his performance sort of added to the feeling that he was just a real oddball. I thought he was very interesting. You know, his character, you know, as I was thinking just now, his character almost reminded me of a cross between Edward Norton and Brad Pitt in Fight Club. Like almost that sort of just hmm. there's something which clearly is a serial killer of some sort. Yeah. yeah. Clearly that that would explain it. If if you were to adapt that story today in a maybe a modern version, what what would you do? I think it would be very challenging to adapt it today and make it believable. And the main reason I think that is because of the changes in technology. Because in 19, the story came out in 1958, the show was 1965. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have Google. You didn't have cameras on the streets. I think in London, there's cameras practically on every street corner. You couldn't disappear as easily um, today as you could then. And I think now, if you were to adapt it, you'd have to figure out a way to get around people's ability to always be in touch with each other. Maybe you could have Sally head out and then her mother notices she forgot her cell phone. She left her cell phone at home. And then she decides to go somewhere in the story. She goes on a, a train, I think. Here, you could never go on a plane because it would be too hard to get through security and book it all. So maybe just for romantic reasons, she decides to get on a train or a bus or she's walking by the station and decides to do it that way. But I think the the technology today would make it very hard to explain why nobody could track her and nobody could figure out where she was. I, I wonder, I mean, a couple, a couple thoughts on that. I mean, one, I was thinking if someone... I mean, that's part of the mystery in some ways. If if you did do a, a modern version, not being able to find that person makes it sort of interesting. And and that's true. That's true. There have been articles and stories about missing brides. I mean, it seems to happen even now. You, you see the suddenly someone's disappeared and they're trying to find them. And unfortunately, sometimes it's not good, but other times they're they're found and they're trying to disappear. I was sort of going with an idea. And this is really, I don't know why, maybe I was in a dark mood today, but almost almost even a little bit more futuristic, kind of a dystopian version of this. And I, I for whatever reason, this was totally bizarre. I don't know why it popped in my head, but have a Megan Fox play Sally and Machine Gun Kelly play, uh, play Oscar. Which I don't know who Machine Gun Kelly okay. is. He's a he's a musician, and okay. they're actually married. So oh. anyway, it, it would be. I know Megan Fox. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, what well, what I mean, other? I was thinking, see, Sally Kellerman was Sally in the TV show, and I think she's reasonably attractive, but she's not a gorgeous knockout movie star type actress, which right. I think Megan Fox is. And I think if Megan Fox got lost, people would notice. <laughs> so I, I came up with, um, do you know Florence Pugh? No. She's an actress. She's the same age now that Sally Kellerman was when they made the TV show. And I what, think she what's might she been be in? Um, She's been in some movies. I can't think of the, the name of the movies right now. But if you look her up, you'll see what I mean. She's got kind of that that dreamy look. Yeah, that I think might fit. What uh, any? I mean, th as always, super fun. Any other any other thoughts or or ideas or just anything else that struck you about the story? Well, as far as the casting, I did come up with some other cast members because I knew oh, you yeah. were going to ask me that. <laughs> um, there's a guy named Josh Josh Hutcherson who was in the Hunger Games. He's he's the young blonde guy in the Hunger Games. I thought he could be the fiance. Uh -huh. And for the parents, um, have you ever seen the TV show Bosch? Yes, it's a police show. Titus yeah. Welliver, I think he might be a good father. And Marissa Tomei for the mother. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious! 
I know we think of her as young, but she's now 58. I think they would be a good parents. And for the for Oscar, there's a guy named Bill Skarsgård who played the scary clown in Stephen King's It. Okay. He's Swedish. He might be good for that. So those were the cast <laughs> members I came up with. <laughs> and and then in terms of the story, uh, again, either Auburn's version or the adaptation, anything else? That jumps out at you or that or that you'd want to share just any other closing well, thoughts i like the way he tells it it's it's what i think of as a raconteur style where it's like the narrator is sort of telling the story to the reader in a casual conversational way and to create suspense every once in a while he'll throw in a comment um that refers to something that hasn't happened yet for instance early in the story he says that was what it made it all so odd. And you don't know what he's talking about, what is so odd, but just the fact that he throws that in randomly makes you interested enough to keep reading to find out what he's talking about. But I thought I thought it was a well-done story. I like the way it moves from humor to a dread towards the end to the discovery of the dead woman. And it's almost a throwaway, the very last line where he says it, it made her disappearance meaningful. Yeah. You know, that they were able to find this girl. One of the issues that I'm having with this story for me is because I've read it now so many times, I can't remember the first time and how it impacted me. And so I'd be very curious for folks if it's their first time listening or uh, first time reading it, I'd be really curious about feedback from any anybody that wants to put a comment uh, just because it's, I've read it so many times now that I already, I already know what's going to happen. So that surprise and all that twist was sort of, it, it was just hard to remember. Yeah. Once you know the outcome, when you reread it, you're always thinking of that as you read. Yeah. Well, any, any other, any other last thoughts? I'm, 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 I'm disappointed that there are no other adaptations uh, for us to discuss. Uh, maybe maybe there'll be a future one. Yeah, me too. I don't. I'd have to look on IMDb and see what other TVs or movie versions there were. Do you know of his stories? I, so there are a couple of short stories that were adapted uh, more for film festivals. Short, you know, student films. There were these two. I believe there was a Canadian show that did an earlier adaptation of the icon of elijah but i haven't been able to find it anywhere so that's kind of i'd mm -hmm. love to see that earlier version that's probably lost yeah mm -hmm. it was it was a, Can a canadian show so yeah, i think we talked about to, that yeah so hmm. well as always thank you so much and and let's definitely stay in touch yeah, it was my pleasure. I'll keep listening to the podcast. I'm really enjoying all the stories that I haven't heard before. Thank you. Oh, I suppose God only knows It sounds like a story to me Some crazy fable that you would not believe